evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special edition of Ignite Radio Live over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. Praise with us. Woo! The resurrected king is resurrecting me. I love that. Not just past tense, the process, the journey, the dynamic adventure that God calls us to of his grace alive. We welcome you tonight on this special episode. You're with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, 8 p.m. Tuesday nights and Encore Presentation, 2 p.m. You can find all our old Saturdays. Saturdays, did I say that? Podcasts you can find at massimpact.us and all the major podcast platforms. You can download our app where you can stream this and our Live It Gathering guides and weekly videos and all kinds of fun stuff, articles. Uh, if you go to massimpact.us forward slash app, there's a new article there, Catholic Exchange. Blessed that they featured it a week and a half ago, and it's uh, really been getting a lot of traction. It was based upon the reading uh, a couple Sundays ago, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's great to share with folks who, you know, you know, I would put my hand in the air if somebody came in the room and said, you know, do you love Jesus Christ? I mean, which of us are not going to raise our hands or which of you love God? Most people are going to raise their hands. But, um, you know, the truth is, and that gospel invites us to go deeper and, uh, and recognize, are we keeping his commandments? You know, even if it's not the biggies, if you will, the big sins, certainly even actual sins, you know, Jesus, you know, in the, invites us to consider that realm of our minds and our hearts, our dispositions. As a husband, as a father, I am apprised every day in the school of sainthood that is a family of how far I am. And you know what? I don't lament. Um, I, I know that the, that's the gift of the church, to keep my eyes fixed on the call to perfection and to seek the grace of our church. And we're blessed to have a guest we're going to introduce very shortly tonight, an author, an awesome author, and I'm blessed to know as a very good brother of Christ, brother in Christ. Uh, he's a father of seven children, husband and father, and I knew him back in the days at Miami, and uh, God has uh, blessed this man, gifted him in many ways, especially in the area of evangelization and Bitcoin, but that's another story. It's kind of pretty cool, actually, the the kind of, uh, you know, balance that this young, this young man has. Um, before we go there, though, we're excited about an event we're excited about an event coming up this coming Sunday and for all of you wonderful observers you know this Sunday is the Feast of Pentecost June 4th and it's going to be I think our third annual yes praying with fire third or second well, second Praying with Fire. Second Praying with Fire conference. And uh, we encourage you, we, until tomorrow night, 9 p.m., uh, you can still register at massimpact.us forward slash fire. Massimpact.us forward slash fire. Peter Herbeck's going to be with us. Seven Keys to a Mission Community. We leaders are going to try to bring our mojo as best as we can. Seven Keys to a Mission Family. And uh, the always amazing Andrew Reinhardt is going to share the Catholic foundations of life in the Holy Spirit. And it's going to end with a very powerful Ignite experience. Those of you who've never been to one or have been to one, and you want to, you know, renew that uh, sense of encountering God's presence, a power present to us today, the Holy Spirit poured out, come to this event. Ignite, pyramidical structure, candles around it, worshiping Jesus in the monstrance. And just a moment of uh, praise and thanksgiving. I think maybe as you were thinking back, the history of this, our very first Ignite in the Diocese of Toledo was actually on Pentecost Sunday. 
So okay. the Lord has just profoundly blessed so many encounters with him um, through that awesome evening of praise and worship coming before him in his Eucharistic presence. In Very fact, cool. by the numbers, um, easily at this point, over 75,000 uh, encounters of worship over the last four years. And, you know, as we're doing the fun IRS stuff that you have to do with a nonprofit organization, you know, Andrew is our awesome accountant and whiz without which we would not exist. Um, you know, getting the numbers just in the last year alone, over 129,000 views of our live it videos, which is pretty cool. Um, so anyways, welcome. It's great to have you all with us tonight. And before we go further, let's just open the doors in prayer to seek God's grace in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, you brought us here for a reason. Whoever's listening right now, and the cool thing is 2,000 years ago, you looked ahead to this moment and you saw everything that we are struggling with, whatever's spinning around relationally, maybe in our marriages, in our work, at home, whatever's going on in the world, you saw, Lord, everything that was happening. And though you had the power to alleviate the pain at any moment, you chose to persevere in that suffering for us. Blood and water poured out on that cross, a power of heaven coming to earth for each of us, you loved us so much, you stayed fixed to that cross and endured unto death and took us, Lord, with you into that grave through baptism and rose again, Lord, that we can find in you new life. Lord, make us aware that these are not just nice words or catechetical ideas, but you are truly present to us, uh, heart, mind, body, soul, spirit with us, body and blood in the mass. We invite you, Lord, tonight to all the more conquer our minds, all the more conquer our hearts, all the more inhabit us. All the more claim our marriages, claim our places of work, claim this world, Lord, that in the next hour you make it all the more clear to us, Lord, the degree to which when you call us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you would not ask us to pray this if you did not uh, make it possible for it to be accomplished. So inform us tonight, Lord, all the more how we are called to be your instruments of grace poured out into this world in spite of our weakness. We lift all of this up to the glory of your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to introduce this awesome brother in Christ I've been talking about. His name is, drumroll please, dun, 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 dun. Eric Sammons. Eric Sammons. So blessed to have you with us tonight. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great, Greg. It's great to be with you guys tonight. Okay, be awesome. honest. You smiling as I was kind of bringing my evangelical black Baptist preacher Catholic to the <laughs> microphone. Come on. You can be honest. We're oh, brothers. it mostly just makes me think of the old days when we were both at Miami. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So, so it does uh, make me smile. <laughs> awesome. So, um, folks, before right out of the gates, tell you where you need to go. Uh, EricSammons.com. E-R-I-C-S-A-M-M-O-N-S.com. EricSammons.com. And you're going to right away see a number of books that Eric has published. Um, an interesting collection. Most of them are theological that I see in front of me, but some of them are, are intriguing. Bitcoin basics. And I'll tell you what, we're going to kind of give a portrait right now, Eric, if you can tell us where you're at, and then we're going to kind of do the sound of music thing, go back to the very beginning, because of course it's a very good place to start. So give us a snapshot of where you're at right now, and then, then we'll then take us back. 
Yeah, right now I'm basically a full-time author and editor. Uh, so I write these, I write books. I also do editing. Um, I do a lot of work, uh, Catholic textbooks, uh, editing those both on a theological side, but also just in the writing of it to make sure it's uh, understandable for young people. Uh, I, I, just, I enjoy what I'm doing. I do a lot of things, um, different outreaches online as well. You know, my website. I have a podcast I started recently. Uh, you know, but I, I just enjoy what I'm doing, and a lot of it's just trying to get my interests. Anything I'm interested in, I like to write about and talk about. And the thing I'm most interested in, in of course, is our Lord in the Catholic Church. That is awesome. With the close second of baseball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, undergirding that, the beautiful Suzanne and your wife yes. and seven ch- And I got Suzanne, folks. This is just, you know, let's have confession here on air. I, I, beautiful woman. <laughs> we are kindred and dynamic evangelization and pro-life work at Miami, but I think I only got her name right maybe one out of ten times. I was all saying Susan, but yeah, you know, right. not until well, you Eric... got it right more recently, so that's good. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, I, I, I think twice. So, um, so you have seven children what's the age range the oldest is 20 and the youngest is two years old wow that's that's awesome very awesome praise god now you guys i know i asked you this question before are you homeschoolers of the grade school or into high school we homeschool them all the way through high school. Okay. Uh, my, my oldest one is just finished her sophomore year in college, and my second daughter's getting ready to go off to college this fall. Wow. And then, but they were homeschooled all the way through. Awesome. And are you mother of divine modgers, as we say, mother of divine yeah. grace? Okay. Yes, we are. Little yes. plug, little plug. All these reasons, I love you, man. No, so we are Mother Divine Grace. Uh, we subscribe also to that, and it was delightful to reconnect with your wife down in Washington, D.C. at the March for Life. For life. Yeah. So we're going to back up a little bit because uh, we really want you, our listeners, that Revelations twelve eleven, and we kind of always pose it this way. Do we see the activity of the enemy around us? Obviously we do, and uh, we experience the enemy in our marriages and in our families. And it says there they defeated the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, so of course the, the Mass, and by the word of their testimony. And so we're really, we recognize as Catholics, we have a hard time sharing our testimony. And maybe we do because we think it needs to be this monolithic, huge conversion. Um, but in truth, we just want to say this again and again. God is alive in your story, in your witness. He's in the midst of it. And uh, just as a way to kind of set up talking about this brand new book called The, the Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. And again, ericsammons.com is where you can find find that. Um, Eric, take us back to the beginning, in particular, maybe the first two episodes, one, your background and maybe coming to really uh, know Jesus Christ and live for him. And then uniquely for our listeners, I did not know you in the earliest years as a Catholic at Miami of Ohio. You were a roommate of my rabble rouser brother, Nathan, now professor at Hillsdale. So praise God, you guys both grew up teasing you, of course. Um, You converted (laughs) to Catholicism. So share with us those two episodes. Sure. So I grew up as a Protestant, and in and by my, my junior high school, early high school, I wasn't really practicing anything. I mean, my family was, but I wasn't very interested in that. But my sister was involved in our church's youth group, and she kind of begged me and, and prodded me to come, and so I did. And then we went on a youth retreat, and it was funny, on the youth retreat, at the beginning of it, one of the people in our group actually asked me, hey, do you want to go smoke some marijuana? And I was <laughs> like, course. whoa, this is not exactly what I expected from a youth retreat. <laughs> hey, it was dude. just like another kid on the treat. And 
but I said no. Grace of God, I said no. And then it was literally the next day I made an altar call where I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Wow. Now, as a Catholic, we know that's not a sacramental event, and I know there's a lot of emotions involved and things like that, yet I am convinced it was a grace-filled moment mm-hmm. where, because I know, looking back, it's the moment my life started taking a different direction. I very easily could have gone with that young man and smoked marijuana with him, but instead God pushed me the other direction, and from that moment, I've always tried, failed sometimes, mm-hmm. but always tried to follow our Lord. And so I really look at that, and that was my sophomore year in high school, as a, as a major moment in my life where, you, you know, where I, I made Jesus Christ the, the center of my life. Mm-hmm. And then now the story then changes, and in, in when I go off to college at Miami, and here's where you get involved, Greg, because you were in charge of the pro-life group there, and you were friends with my sister. She started getting involved with the pro-life group. She then got me to get involved with the pro-life group. So you see the, the, the pattern here. My sister, sister got me in the youth group. I know. Yeah. I, know. She, I don't know. If she, she might regret some of this, but <laughs> <laughs> she's a good Christian woman. She wouldn't, really. But, well, we, we but had no, many Catholics, too, which was kind of cool. I mean, we, were, we had a good mix there in the camp, campus, and we'd infiltrated a lot of the, which was kind of cool. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, no. And, well, that's what happened. So she got me going to the pro-life group. And then after you left, because you were about, I think, three years ahead of me, and so you graduated, and I got more involved in the pro-life group. But by then, it was much more dominated after you left by Catholics, including your brother, my future wife, and some others. And I was one of the few Protestants who was actively involved. Mm -hmm. But what that did over the next few years, it got me really to, to just be around Catholics who took their faith seriously. Because mm. growing up, I knew Catholics, but none of them really took their faith seriously. So I didn't take them seriously when it came to Christianity. Mm. But then I started to see people like your brother Nate, my future wife Suzanne, and others, they were living their faith. They, they loved Jesus, and they were Catholic. And to me, that was a paradigm shift, so, so to speak. Like, wow, you can be Catholic, and you can be a Christian, so to speak. And then, you know, make a long story short, over the next few years, through just prayer, uh, your brother constantly harassing me, and you know other graces of God. Uh, my, by my senior year, I was received into the Catholic Church, uh, and you know Our Lady had a lot to do with that as well in the prayers of the Rosary. Uh, but that was 25 years ago. So thanks, by the way, earlier calling me a young man. That's not really true anymore, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Yes, it oh my goodness! So um, were there pivotal moments, Eric, that stand out for you theologically or insights about the Catholic? faith that caused you to, uh, you know, make the move, if you will? You know, one thing I remember very distinctly is when I went off to college as as a practicing Christian, I didn't really know that there were different theological opinions about issues. I was ignorant. Right. So I didn't know that people held different views on baptism, mm-hmm. on communion, or anything like that. I was just like, I thought everybody just agreed with what I thought, what, which is what my pastor thought in mm-hmm. high school. And I remember still sitting in my room, I don't know if you remember Joe Minkhouse, of course, he oh, was yeah. in our group as well, and we were talking about once saved, always saved, which I believed as, a, as an evangelical Christian. And he was like, no, that's nonsense. <laughs> that, you know, he said sure. basically, and you know, he said very directly, but he was right, it is nonsense. The idea that once you you make a decision for Christ, you're guaranteed heaven no matter what you do afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that was the first moment where I was like, well, maybe what I was taught as an evangelical in my church in, in, in home in Cincinnati isn't maybe the right thing, because I started to realize, you know, I think Joe's right. I think maybe once they've always said isn't proper. And so that was kind of like the beginning of, okay, start looking into this. Start realizing that Christians throughout 
history have thought different things about different issues and do some research and find out what it is that you believe. And that, I think, was the beginning of the path that eventually led to Catholicism. I had no idea at the time, of course, it would lead there, but that's where it eventually led. So I'm hearing two really solid foundations that were taking place there. One was certainly an intellectual foundation where you wanted truth and you wanted to understand the basis that revelation isn't something we create or we feel, but really an honest, humble approach to what is revelation certainly sacred scripture, but also uh, the oral tradition clearly communicated before it was ever written down, and then how authoritatively do we know which books are which, and how do we authoritatively know, understand, say, John 6 or whatever, and I even think that for our listeners, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 alone, for those who perhaps are looking for a passage to understand what the church teaches and what scripture teaches, really, you know, here's Peter saying, be alert and sober mind, and he's speaking to Christians, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why would we be on guard as, if you will, born-again Christians and have once saved, always saved? If you know, Why would he be challenging us to be concerned there? And then secondly, what I think is great for our listeners to hear and myself reaffirming that you saw the authenticity, um, if you will, the integrity of those who were living this out, and not just in sort of a heady, conceptual way, but you saw, if you will, some Catholics who were on fire, who were intentional, who loved God. Um, and I dare say, between the two of them, perhaps the, the greater number of those who either don't come to the church or leave the church perhaps do so more because, the, you know, the, the lack of that integrity and that testimony. And uh, I, I'm grateful to the Holy Spirit alive in the likes of Scott Hahn, and I put you in that group, Eric, uh, who were honest enough to seek that truth and who bring that um, vitality. So that, that's pretty awesome. So if I had not seen people living their faith, I wouldn't have even bothered with the intellectual journey. Mm. That was the foundation. I wouldn't even listen to your brother and to others talk about the Catholic faith if I didn't see it lived in his life, but also in the lives of other Catholics around me. That's awesome. You know, there's something I, I smiled at also. You kind of said it quickly, but Joe Menkow said to you, that's nonsense, or you know, whatever, whether it was a paraphrase or not. You know, what I like about that is there's a certain respectful directness also. Um, you know, it's not kind of a PC be afraid or whatever, there is a place among friends where there's a relational foundation. And so maybe to our listeners also, to those of us who have good friends, you know, maybe we're too afraid of what they might think. And to some extent, especially with brothers, especially with men, you know, to have that kind of, you know, forthrightness. So I, you know, I smiled when you said that. And I know that that kind of banter in college, if you can have in college, you know, why can't you have it when you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, having a beer or whatever the case may be. Um, Let's shift to this new book. And uh, before we do, just, if you will, as a, as a setting, you've written a couple of other books already. Um, give us a, just a brief overview, and I'm just going to keep directing our listeners who may be just tuning in to Eric Sammons, E-R-I-C-S-A-M-M-O-N-S dot com, where you can find these books. Um, just set the stage a little bit for us of some of the books that preceded this, and what even led you to wanting to write this very uniquely titled book, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. My first book I wrote about seven or eight years ago, uh, Who is Jesus Christ? Unlocking the Mystery in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's really a reflection on the character of Jesus Christ and how people viewed him in the Gospel of Matthew. Because I think that tells us something about him, how others viewed him in his own life. And I wrote another book called Holiness for Everyone, The Spirituality of St. Jose Maria Escriva. Mm-hmm. And that's really a kind of a guide for how can we live holy lives? How practically can we do that? As you mentioned, I wrote a book on Bitcoin. Bitcoin, which if you're interested, just go to my website and find out about that. But then this book, The Old Evangelization, is the one I, I just 
finish. And that really is a culmination of my own experience because I was doing evangelization before I became Catholic, continued then after I converted on an individual level. Then I got involved in the parish level, and I was even involved in the diocesan level for five years as the director of evangelization for a diocese. So I've kind of seen it all. And, I, and so the book itself takes my own experiences, what I've learned, both successes and failures, and I have plenty of those in my pocket, and really looks at, okay, what is the best way we can do evangelization by looking at the model of Jesus Christ himself? You know the old saying, what would Jesus do? I mean, I remember doing that when I was in high school in the 80s in my Protestant high school. What would Jesus do? And I said to myself, well, how would Jesus evangelize? We always think of St. Paul or St. Francis Xavier as the great evangelizers, and they are. But Jesus Christ, of course, is the model for everything. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to look at him and say, okay, how did he evangelize, and how can that be a model for us today? So I'm thoroughly intrigued, and for our audience, I want to read just the first paragraph of the description because I, I relate to it. Our whole mission is, you know, shares this uh, sensibility. It says, it seems like every day somebody comes out with a new trick for bringing people into the faith. Mixing pop psychology with spiritual fads and marketing jargon, these techniques seem to last only until the next big idea comes around. And despite their hype, they usually don't win many souls. Wow. I mean, I, I, I think what I like, and I want you to you know share it with us in a moment, the, this distinction between old and new evangelization. But of course, um, Paul VI and all the popes up to present day have had this sense that we're a, a, lo- a culture that is losing its sensibility of Christ, well, we have the words. We can turn on any YouTube channel or TV or whatever, see the televangelist. The words of grace and faith and Jesus Christ surround us, but they've been diminished because of the poor witness, the poor testimony, um, the hype, the jargon, all the things that you speak of. And uh, the, the theory, at least, if my understanding, is that there needs to be a new way of approaching this, new in art or new in methods, etc., etc. Um, and, and it seems to me that you're kind of attuned to the fact that now we've been at this for 20, 30 years, and what are we really discovering. Certainly, there have been deep conversions. There is evangelization going on, and a lot of it might be right in that new evangelization wave. So explain to us in that context and um, your understanding and, and just wanting to bring out this, this theme of, of old evangelization. Well, the new evangelization, of course, is called by uh, St. John Paul II. And one of, I think, the main points he was making, and, and I think all the popes in recent years have made this, is that we really are in a new situation in the Church. Evangelization, historically, has always meant missionary work. You go away somewhere where people have never heard of Jesus. That's evangelization. But today, we have a situation in which you go to the person right next to you in the pew to evangelize. We have people who are baptized but have never been evangelized. And so that's the new, that's the real crux, I think, of the new situation. Now, I think, uh, first of all, I'm very self-critical by nature. I, I look at all I do and I say, okay, what have I done wrong? And I tend to do that. And so I've looked at the new evangelization of the past 25 years. The fact is, you are right. There's been mu- many conversions, many great graces. But we also have to be honest and say, we are hemorrhaging members. People are leaving the Catholic Church left and right, at least in this country. And we have to be honest with ourselves and say, why is that? Mm-hmm. Is it just the culture's fault? Is it our fault, perhaps? Maybe things we've done? What are the things we can do better? And I think a, a, a key point of that is I think we've become too dependent in the new evangelization on big marketing hype mm-hmm. or being in love with methods of new methods of communication. Listen, I have a Facebook page. I have a website. I have a Twitter account. I have a podcast. I'm not against these methods of 
technology and these new communications. However, I think when they become the only, when we believe that's all evangelization is, I think we really fail. I define the old evangelization like this. I call it a one-on-one personal encounters which challenge people to conversion. It's exactly what you just said a few minutes ago, Greg, when we were talking about Joe telling me that's nonsense. I have a one-on-one personal encounter with him. Here's a Catholic I know. I'm friends with. We're roommates. We know each other well. And he challenges me to conversion, in this case, to rethink how Jesus works out his salvation in people. He's, he's not, like, tiptoeing around the tulips. He's not trying to be PC, avoid confrontation. No, he's direct, in love, in clarity. He's saying to me, I think you might want to rethink this. I think you're wrong in what you're thinking in this. That's, that's true old evangelization as I see it, and that's how Jesus did it, and that's how the church has always done it. And I think we need to return to that more, that idea of the crux of evangelization is that one-on-one personal encounter where we challenge people to conversion. That's awesome. And, you know, as a, so true. Is, so is, true. Is, is it coming from a non-Catholic perspective where you experience young life, I suspect, and you experience um, Campus Crusade for Christ, I certainly right. had exposure to those also. Um, I think there's a, there's a danger in us appropriating those uh, methodologies, and I even think in their self-reflection, they're recognizing the danger, I'll put it this way, of worshiping programs in the name of God, or even worshiping emotions in the name of God. They're, and even this once saved, always saved, I'm seeing a kind of awakening among our non-Catholic Christian brothers to recognizing not only is the theolog- theology non-biblical and problematic, but it, you know, it, it results in a kind of disassociation from the church. So how do you see, you know, if you will, as a Catholic, what do you maybe bring of that vitality um, with this kind of cell, what does it look like? Maybe is what I'm asking. What does what does it look like from a, a maybe a corporate perspective? A pastor talking about this and engaging his community, be a evangelizing community. What kinds of things do they need to start speaking about to orient us toward this sort of evangelization? Well, I think one thing that we can really admire, first of all, in our Protestant brothers and sisters, the evangelicals, is their great. Each individual has a desire to evangelize, and I think that's something as Catholics we should admire and try to emulate. And that, I think, is what the pastors and you know parish leaders, they really should be trying to foster, is a desire among the people to evangelize. And as you know and I know, you're not going to want to evangelize unless you've been evangelized. So that's mm-hmm. step one, mm-hmm. is you make sure your people are evangelized, that they really have a love of Christ, they have a love of the sacramental lifestyle, and they... And then they will want to share that with others. Because, you know, I was director of evangelization for a diocese. I often would tell people, listen, technically my responsibility is to evangelize every single soul that's in this diocese. However, I'm not talking to all of them, but you are. Mm. All the Catholics, if every Catholic in every parish in the diocese would go out and they would just evangelize their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, their family, we would cover the entire diocese in a week. And so that's really what I think it is, is that people realize evangelization is not at its core going and preaching on the street corner, going door to door. I've done those things, but that's not what is at its crux. It's not giving a talk like Billy Graham or Scott Hahn, which, you know, great that they do that. But it really is, you're just talking to your neighbor at the dinner table, Mm -hmm. and you're talking about your life. You're talking about how this past weekend, your daughter received First Communion. It was such a beautiful moment where she could receive Jesus. You're talking to your coworker about how, you know, he's suffering because his wife just passed away, and you give him consolation, and you tell him about the love of Christ and how that can, you know, bring meaning to his Mm -hmm. suffering. These are, that's even 
evangelization where you have these relationships with people and you bring them each day a little bit closer to Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. Because the fact is, you're either bringing them closer to Christ or you're bringing them further away from Christ, no matter what. So you might as well make a, a, a conscious effort to bring them closer to Christ in the Catholic Church. That's a powerful thing you say, and it's worth us emphasizing again. God could speak from the heavens. He could have this major theophany. But the majesty, the mystery, the wonder that he would make it dependent on our yes, that he would manifest his his grace to the world through us, which means what? If we say no, if we resist, if we reject to some extent, it's going to have a detrimental effect on others and ourselves, um, you know, experiencing the salvation that he calls us to forever. Um, so a question that I think is uh, it's on my mind, Eric, is, uh, and for people who are listening right now, um, and the backdrop is this, 80% of Catholics who've been sacramentalized are gone by age 23, roughly, and even those who go to Mass, so that 25%-ish that still go to Mass, a Pew study uh, recently said that only 15% of them are even praying before dinner. And you maybe just hit the nail on the head and said, maybe um, we haven't been evangelized ourselves. Maybe we ourselves haven't encountered Christ in a way that he is Lord overall, over everything. And again, realizing we're sinners and we're on a journey. But I want to ask you the question, what do you think stands in the way of us simply even doing this in our own homes, of us evangelizing our spouses and our children? Why isn't it happening? I think the number one thing is fear. We are afraid. First of all, we're afraid that we might screw up. We might say the wrong thing and actually lead somebody away. I think that's people think that. They think, oh, I don't know the catechism backwards and forwards. I don't know all the theology like a Scott Hahn does or a Bishop Barron does. I don't know what to say. So we're afraid there. But I think the bigger fear is we fear rejection. Mm. We fear social rejection, which is really what we're going to get, because in America right now, we're probably not going to get killed or martyred or anything like that, but we're going to get social rejection. We're not going to get invited to next month's barbecue party down the street. I know that sounds kind of petty, Mm. but I believe that that's a fear that we have, and I believe I have it as much as the next person. We don't want to be looked upon as the religious crazy person, you know, the religious cook down down the street or at the water cooler at work. Mm -hmm. And so our fears keep us back. What I found is I, I am... The number one in this, in having this fear as well, I don't like being laughed at. I don't like being rejected. I want to be liked by everybody around me. I think most people do, and I I do as much as the next guy. But what I found is when I overcome that fear and I step out and I do real evangelization where I I challenge somebody, I call them the conversion, I, I, I do something that's direct with them about Jesus Christ, I found every time it's a graceful moment, every time Mm -hmm. that I look back and say, wow, Jesus really worked his grace and the Holy Spirit really was on that conversation, on that activity like I've never seen before. And whenever I chicken out, and I've chickened out a ton in my life, I always look back and and regret it Mm -hmm. and say, why did I do that? That was so stupid that I chickened out. Mm -hmm. And so I think fear is what's keeping most of us back. Even those of us who really want love our faith and want to live it, we're still afraid. We don't want to look too 
crazy, too radical, because it just, you know, they, people will laugh at us, and nobody wants to be laughed at. <laughs> that is so true, and I thanks for your, your honesty there. We all do share that with you, and fear is there. And, you know, for our brothers and sisters listening right now, maybe just if we can be mindful that this stands in the way and pray for the grace to overcome it and pray for these moments of encounter. And even right now, if I were to ask the question, who is that one person closest to you? Because typically that's the way God works. We're not necessarily talking the stranger on the bus. That may be the case. But who's that person closest to you that loves you, that you love, that trusts you, um, with whom, you know, you would love to share a little deeper, invite them a little deeper to take a step more fully into surrendering to Christ is really what we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, look at the title, Eric, again, of your book, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. And you know what strikes me is the very beginning, the incarnation, though he's in the form of God. So he's up there, he's in his world, it's perfect. He doesn't need us, but he takes on flesh and blood, not only flesh and blood, but in a particular cultural situation. Um, he looked like them, he dressed like them, he you know spoke like them, and he understood the worldview that they had. And I think in a similar way... Um, you know, we're called, in a sense, you know, to do that same thing with this, say, the, the particular person. It's going to be different for every person, but maybe the person that we're picturing right now, what is their unique life? What is their unique experience? What are they going through right now that might be a door for us to connect with them in that place? So I have to even back up a second. How many people today, with all their devices and gadgets, have even opportunities to cultivate, how much of this is a problem is maybe what I'm saying, of relationship where they're having this kind of, you know, connection? versus being in front of their digital stuff. Yeah, it's a real it's a real problem. I've always I mean I've I've my degree at Miami was systems analysis. So I've always been a tech guy. I love tech, but I do fear that the way the technology is developed with all the devices and our heads down into them and I'm I'm with uh, my own kids sometimes doing that and I I, I tell myself you got to stop that and look up. And I do think that's a real problem because uh, real evangelization's eye to eye. And I think the devices, they keep us from being eye to eye. You look somebody in the eye, and when you look them in the eye, you can you, you know them. You can read them. I, in fact, my wife was just telling my son recently about he wanted to text somebody something, a kind of a joke, and she, his cousin wanted to text him a joke about something and kind of making fun of him. And it was all in good nature, but my wife said, you know, he can't see you when you say that. If you said that to him in person, he would laugh. He would think it's funny because he sees your smile. He sees your eyes. But you send that in a text, and now he might be offended mm. because he might think you're, 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 you're bringing him down or something like that. And I think that's, in evangelization, that's a key aspect. All these devices and the technology, hopefully they will bring us to better relationships with people. But the real key when we're evangelizing is that eye-to-eye contact where we're saying to the person in our bodily actions and what we say, I love you and I care about you. It's very hard to say that in a Facebook post or a tweet or something like that. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because I wonder if you went in the direction of, oh, I'll hang out, Tim, you know, or whatever, you know. <laughs> Go face-to-face over digital. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book, and I'm actually a little bit uh, happy that I'm coming in blind because I'm able to learn, and it is very intriguing. I think this book addresses um, some key questions that many of us have who are, are committed Catholics, who love God. We know that there is uh, an intimacy that, that we have with our Savior. Um, in the last maybe 10, 15 years, maybe a number of us have even become comfortable with that formerly verboten phrase, relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Christ. But let's let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the call to conversion, the radical call to conversion, in light of what it means to have this relationship with Jesus. Because I think if we were to ask people this question, and I think we're really honest, we're chewing on it, a lot of people might say, well, I go to Mass, and, and I pray the Rosary, and can you ever be closer to Christ than receiving him? And the answer, of course, is no, you can't be closer to Jesus than receiving him. But we're talking about something a little deeper or a little more nuanced there. Can you help us understand this relationship with Jesus and conversion? I think a great story that I I use in the the book is Jesus and the rich young man. Because the rich young man comes to him and he says, what must I do, what deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, for an evangelist, that's like a setting up on the tee to hit a home run. I mean, really, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, what do I have to do to get eternal life? You're like, I got myself a winner here. I, I, can, I can hit this one out of the park, no problem. And so what Jesus does, of course, he tells them first to, to, to follow the commandments, and which should tell us something about the importance of the moral life that's mm-hmm. foundational to a uh, discipleship in Christ, the moral life is. But then the, the young man wants to go deeper. He knows it's more than just following the commandments. And then Jesus says something to him. He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And that really is the crux of evangelization, that you give everything up. In this case, Jesus saw this young man, it was his riches that kept him from full discipleship. So he challenged him directly and said, you have to give it all up and then come follow me. And of course, another lesson that I think is good for evangelization here is the young man does not convert. He actually walks away and and Jesus, in a sense, fails. And I say that with all due respect for the right. fact that he's the perfect God-man. But the fact of the matter is, the man doesn't come to conversion. And I think when we evangelize, that's a great lesson for us. Our duty is to proclaim the gospel, mm. to call people lovingly and clearly to conversion. Our duty is not to actually convert them, though. That's the Holy Spirit's job and their free will to choose to do that. And so we shouldn't look to our evangelization efforts just simply as, okay, successes and failures in the eyes of the world. Oh, I got this person to go to mass regularly. I got this person to go to confession. Those things are great. But what really we should be saying is, did I lovingly and clearly proclaim the gospel and challenge them to conversion? If you did, what they do with that is up to them, and you can't control that. So you should be happy that you have done your duty. You have done what the Lord has called you to do. Awesome. I just very moved by that, and I think it is so on point. Uh, Eric, do you think there's kind of an overemphasis on uh, in that incarnation, maybe misunderstanding it, idea of trying to be cool, you know, the, the youth minister ever offering you the pot analogously or Starbucks in every hallway? And, and you know, are, are we maybe missing out because, yeah, I don't know, we're too afraid of bringing it as it is? I really think that's a major problem, to be honest. I feel like too often parishes, you know, when they're reaching out to young people, they're trying to be cool. When they're reaching out to older people, they're just trying to be relevant. They want to be just completely um, ape the culture, so to speak. And the truth is, if we try to be just like the culture, then why would anybody choose us over the culture? There'd be no reason to. Right. And so why wake up early on Sunday morning and go to some service that's just trying poorly and usually to ape MTV? Why not just watch MTV? And so I think what we have to recognize is the church 
has always been countercultural. Even in the Middle Ages, it was countercultural when it was the culture, because you see people like St. Francis of Assisi who broke that culture and said, no, it's more than what you guys are doing. And so we've always been countercultural. We always have to be countercultural. Yes, you know, St. Paul said, I'm all things to all men, and so we don't, like, reject, like, we don't hide from the culture in the sense that we reject all its methods. We, we refuse to get on radio shows and, yep. and Facebook and things like that. We use those tools. But it's always in a countercultural way where we're saying, no, there is a better life than the lies that the culture gives us. It's selling us a pack of lies that will lead to our destruction. Mm. We have a better way. Why should we imitate these people who are basically selling us this lie that if you do this, if you're, if you're successful monetarily, if you're successful with women or with men or whatever, all these things, then you'll be happy. We know that's a lie. So we shouldn't try to be like them. We should try to be ourselves, be disciples of Christ, and know that we have, not through our power or, or smarts, but through the grace of God, we have the words that will lead them to true happiness and true eternal life. That is it's just a great interview, and just my wife is giving you thumbs up if you saw the visuals. It's just really great. Um, so really, in the last 30, 40 years, we've had this, it's been called postmodern uh, culture, where truth is questioned. Is there an objective truth? And even if there is an objective truth, the second part of that, people would use the phrase epistemological, the study of, you know, if you will, knowledge of that. Can we know if it's truth? And it leads to really practical uh, cultural mindsets, such as, well, you think what you want to about abortion or contraception or gender, but that's your view and mine is mine and nobody can say anything about anybody, which if people really trace that, by the way, it's illogical because it basically means anarchy. You can't have any statement or law because there's no objective truth that is anchored in anything other than just consensus at the moment. Um, But I think here's the thing. Chesterton put it so well, you really can't break the objective moral law. You can only break yourself against it. And so after 20, 30 years of going down this road, people thinking they can redefine those berms on the left and the right, they're smashing the new at 60 miles an hour. People who have been divorced are really, we understand their difficult circumstances, but they really are suffering. People who've had abortions, they really are suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. Those who've been in contraception are, are partaking of it, and we get the challenge. I love my wife. I'm as attracted there as the next person. It's a challenge. I've got my, you know, challenges too, but those who have who have, if you will, found themselves in that way of thinking are truly suffering, and the sociology, the stats reveal that. So my point is this. 20, 30 years now, folks who've been handed that lie that you can create your own world are truly broken, and they're looking for somebody to communicate an objective truth of their nature. And so um, if the Catholic Church is not there to make sense of that brokenness, and oh, by the way, only in the Catholic Church do we get that your brokenness, you're never closer to Christ and that he redeems this. He turns bread into his very body, that he takes his brokenness and he transforms it sort of thing. So let me ask you, have you seen some great examples of churches or pastors? And if you haven't, just maybe some advice or guidance to pastors who preside over these ecclesia, these churches that were meant to live it first and foremost, but give that message to others. Have you seen any good examples of how that, if you will, that mission to this world of reaching, you know, Christ's truth to them, which is for the good of their nature in this world and the next, how that's being instantiated, how it's, how it's doing well, how it's healthy, if you will, how they're not one of the 95% that are declining year after year? 
Well, I have a, I tell a great story in the book where a good friend of mine, she grew up Catholic, and then she basically kind of fell away. It wasn't really Catholic, fell away in her college years. She got married in an Episcopal church to a, a, a very fine uh, Protestant man, and they were married for a number of years, and she started deciding she wanted to go back to a Catholic church. And she just went back, received communion, didn't think anything of it, and she heard a pastor give a homily, a pastor she had a relationship with, and basically saying that you can't receive communion if you've been, if you're Catholic married outside the church, which she was. And it shocked her. She was like, what are you telling me? I'm doing something wrong. She couldn't believe it. So she went to the pastor, got an appointment with him, and she asked him about it. Now, think about the difficulties this pastor is going to have and how he has to challenge this woman. He has to be faithful to the truth, the objective truth that Christ has given us about marriage and, and what marriage is and the indissolubility of it and how it's a sacrament, all these things. But yet he also has to be what we call pastoral towards this woman. But he lovingly and clearly tells her, yes, you are living in a way that, is not in conformity with the church, which is, comes to us uh, through Christ. And she accepts it. She accepts what he says, and awesome. she says, okay, I have to do something about this. So sure enough, she gets her marriage regularized, and she, become, you know, she gets married in the church, and she starts to receive communion, go to Mass daily. Her husband, and they, raise their, they start raising their kids Catholic, and her husband's on board with this. He doesn't become Catholic, but he's on board with this. Well, fast forward about... 15, 20, I think almost 20 years later, he decides to convert, and he becomes Catholic. This was about two years ago. He was a good friend of mine. And he tells me one of the reasons he converted, one of the reasons he was attracted to the Catholic Church, was its, its stand on obje- objective moral truths, like the indissolubility of marriage and what marriage is. Mm-hmm. Even though the Church told him his wife did something wrong, <laughs> he was so impressed by that. That he ended up converting himself one day. And I think that's a beautiful example of a pastor being clear about objective moral truths, doing it lovingly, and then the fruit of that is now we have a full Catholic family that goes to daily Mass, lives the sacraments, and just a wonderful family. In fact, the, the, the man I'm talking about is the godfather of one of my children. Awesome. What a great story. And, you know, we, we get this clearly in the medical arts. If you go into a doctor and he is telling you your symptoms and what changes might need to take place and gives you the reality of your physical situation, you know, you would expect that, in fact, he'd be sued if he didn't. And his whole goal is for your physical health, but for, for whatever reason, in the moral realm, in the realm of spirituality, and I'm just so delighted how you laid that out, it, it's no different that there's a truth of our nature, there's a truth of our lives and relationships to Christ, and uh, he wants us to be uh, attuned to him. And when we speak it truly, no, it's beautiful as you contrasted that really with the rich young man. You know, in the case of the rich young man, even Jesus himself didn't result in a conversion there. But uh, how awesome it is when that does happen. But, you know, here's the thing. Even if not, and I want your thoughts on this too, are we not planting seeds or further cultivating maybe seeds that somebody already planted that are helping to form that person when they run into those brick walls, if you will, to clarify that there is, if you will, a shape of love, a shape of truth? Yeah, a sociologist once determined that when people convert religion, so either from nothing to Christianity, Catholicism, you know, from evangelical Catholicism, whatever the case may be, they have at least 150 points of contact with that new wow. religion before they convert. Meaning, maybe they're on a plane sitting next to a Catholic priest. Maybe they go to a Catholic funeral. Maybe they read a magazine article that uh, says something positive about the Catholic Church. Whatever the case may be. Maybe they have a roommate who continually harasses 
racism by Catholicism like I did. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, they had these 150 points of contact. The fact is, it's highly unlikely you will be that 150th point. Mm-hmm. You will probably be the 29th point or the 67th point who brings that person a little bit closer. You don't see it. You don't see anything. You just do what you're, you, you live your faith, and yet it brings that person closer to conversion. And then somebody eventually gets kind of the credit for the 150th point in mm-hmm, you know, helping mm-hmm. the person come to conversion, but really it was that whole 150 points of contact. So we have to remember that as when we're evangelizing, we may be one of those early points that we don't see any fruit, but it does make a difference. It does plant that seed that eventually does grow and bloom. Awesome. Eric, in a second, I'm going to ask you to share with us maybe some practical ideas out there, perspective uh, of how we are called to evangelize. First, we all are are all called, so to emphasize that. And then just maybe um, whatever guidance you can give any of us listening as to how we might take a step further in uh, in really assuming this most important mission of evangelizing. Uh, Folks, you're tuned in to Ignite Radio Live over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. Blessed to be with you. Um, We're having a great conversation with with author, speaker, Eric Sammons. And he's sharing with us some of the content of his new book, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. And you can find this book. It's a brand new book. came out May 1st. Eric Sammons, E-R-I-C-S-A-M-M-O-N-S dot com. Just really encourage you to uh, add that to your book list. And, uh, you know, especially now in this season right now, where we're going to have outdoor barbecues and time with family and friends. You know, it might be even a good thing with, with your study groups if if you're doing that or in your church, uh, you know, a lot of occasions to have something that can be an occasion to talk about with uh, people that are closest to us. So, Eric, share with us a little bit, you know, um, practical insights for how we can evangelize. In the book, I actually give what I call the four P's of evangelization. The first one is practicing the faith. Don't bother evangelizing if you're not going to live it, because you're going to be a terrible witness and people aren't going to listen to you. As they say, if you don't walk the walk, you can't talk the talk. So the number one thing you have to do is you have to practice the faith. Go to confession regularly. I'd say, obviously, go to Mass every Sunday and more if you can. But I'd say a, a key point of that is go to confession regularly, because I think that's a, because confession is the entryway we're trying to bring other people to. And so if we don't go to confession regularly, why are they going to want to go to confession? So the first one is practicing the faith. The second one is prayer. You know, without prayer, evangelization is just marketing. Mm. I mean, we're selling Coke. We're selling sugary drinks. We're not selling our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not promoting him. So we have to pray and really pray for a heart of evangelization, for opportunities to evangelize. So we have to pray. The third P, this is the one that I think surprises people and people don't expect, penance. If you read the the letters of St. Paul, he talks a lot about suffering, Hmm. suffering for his mission, suffering for his people, suffering for the church. He saw that his evangelization's efforts were tied into the sufferings he endured for the people. Hmm. And I think we have to do the same thing. We have to be willing to do voluntary penances, take cold showers, fast, whatever the case may be, Hmm. and involuntary sometimes, things we don't want to do, we do anyway. But we do that for the conversion of others. That's a very Catholic way of looking at, you know, all the way down to the victim souls. But the idea is you just, you do penances for the conversion of others. And the final one, the fourth P, is preaching. And that should be obvious, but I think sometimes people forget. Hmm. They, they, they say, hey, if I'm just practicing the faith, people will figure it out. No, they won't necessarily. You have to tell them. You practice the faith so you have those openings so you can then talk about it. So the final P is that preaching. And that preaching, when I say preaching, I don't necessarily mean from a pulpit. I just mean 
talking to others about why it is you love Jesus and why you follow him. Awesome. You know, often folks will use the misquoted statement of St. Francis, if necessary, use words, which, of course, is ironic for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's one of the church's greatest treasures of preaching, (laughs) and not the least of which. Uh, But, you know, isn't it true also that everybody does have a testimony, and while we should know our faith and be educated all the more, that uh, if we can have just a basic awareness of Christ, how Christ has worked in our lives, uh, you know, Father Larry Richards, uh, the reason for our Hope Foundation, all about always be ready to give a reason for our hope. Uh, and maybe it's a wor- worthwhile question to everybody who's listening right now. You know, if somebody did ask you, you know, give, give me a reason for your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, why do you believe in Jesus? Are we able to do so? Might be a simple thing for our listeners. Um, a second thing, of course, is just, you know, a baby step. Who is one person um, who, you know, might be struggling with some area of their faith? And, and typically it might be uh, a death in the family or, or something that is, is causing them to be particularly dependent, because those are the moments that Christ tends to reach us. Um, Eric, do you find that, that you know, some people, I, I kind of my own thoughts on this answer this question, but some people are maybe more uh, responsive to the gospel, and perhaps it's because they know their poverty, the Anoim thing, that they're in a place of, of need, and uh, maybe because we have such wealth and such comfort um, accessible to us that, you know, hey, I'm good. You know, I got the AC on, and, uh, you know, my job is fairly stable, even though if I don't get an income tomorrow, I'm out a month and a half from now or whatever. But, you know, is there an issue with comfort here, and how do we address unprecedented comfort that even the worst situation in America has, you know, covered for them? How, how, do you, how does a person like that come to more radically rely on Christ when everything is, when everything is good? Yeah, it is a real challenge, and I think the truth is, outwardly, we are all comfortable in this country. Like you said, we have AC, we have money, we have food, we have all our tech gadgets, everything like that. But I think inwardly, people are suffering much more than we want to acknowledge. One time in my parish, I organized some door-to-door campaigns where we just went out and we told people about our parish. It was pretty low-key. We weren't, you know, being like Mormons or anything like that, but we were at their doors talking to them, asking what do you want us to pray for? And that was the key. When we asked them what do you want us to pray for, mm-hmm. we just heard lots of stories of suffering. Mm-hmm. So when you drive through a suburban neighborhood and everybody's got their TV glow coming out from their windows and everything seems to be fine, all their nice lawn, mowed lawns, know there's a lot of suffering behind those walls. Mm-hmm. And they need Jesus. And we found that out very quickly when we went door to door that when we asked them, what would you like us to pray for? We would be there for sometimes for the next half hour and listening to them as they tell and as they cried to us and they mm-hmm. told us what was going on in their life. And it was just a real humbling thing to realize outwardly we might all look like we have it together, but inwardly a lot of us are hurting. And we know the only way that we overcome that hurting is through Jesus Christ, through encountering him in the sacraments, encountering him in the Eucharist, that's the only thing that's going to get us through the, the suffering that occurs in our lives. And so I think we have to realize that, that that's, and, and some of us are too. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, it's not everybody else, it's us too. But we hopefully have seen that through the love of Jesus, through being a disciple of his, we don't avoid suffering, we don't avoid that hurt, but we are able to unite it to his cross. Mm-hmm. And it becomes something that even jo- can be joyful. As, as crazy that, as that might sound to people, it can even be a joyful thing when the suffering occurs. 
Awesome. So, Eric, there's a lot of guys out there coming in for a landing here. Um, there are a lot of people out there right now listening who know this truth, and I, I know we'll all be challenged to think of how we might better proclaim the truth and trust and trust it to God. Um, I think the same, uh, this audience, myself included, it's easy to do with the men's group on Saturday where that stage is set behind closed doors at the church or with the woman's group or at this retreat or whatever. The greatest challenge I think many of us have is how do we do that in our homes? How do we do these four things with our spouse and with our children? So how do you overcome whatever doubts or fears or awkwardness in prioritizing this with your spouse and your family? And what advice, encouragement might might you give to us listeners? Well, you know, I've been at this for 25 years, and I've had my ups and downs. I have had long periods of time, years even, where I felt like I really wasn't doing what I should be doing. I wasn't really living the faith. I wasn't, you know, I had very low points in my own life, even as an outward Catholic, where everybody on the outside would have, would have thought, hey, he's just got it all together. He's just like uber Catholic and all that. But I wasn't. I wasn't at all. And other times where things, I felt like, you know, things are great, and I really am being faithful and things like that. And what I found is it's just, it's a daily struggle. And you have to get up every morning and have a disciplined lifestyle for your prayer life, first of all. I think that's the key, because that, I've noticed the key in my own life. When I am praying the rosary every day, I'm able to, ha- things aren't all of a sudden better in my life. However, I'm able to handle things much better in my life. But when I get off that habit and all of a sudden I decide, ah, I could use that extra, you know, half hour of sleep in the morning, then all of a sudden things start falling apart at the seams. Now, outwardly, maybe nothing changed, mm-hmm. but that praying of the rosary, in my case, or whatever it is that you do each day, you have to have that as that foundation because that's the only way then you're going to be able to live it out in your family. You're going to be able to share it with your family. Maybe you have a wife who's not even, uh, maybe not practicing the faith, and, and you're trying to. Well, if she sees you, if you're praying for her every day, praying a rosary, and she sees you on, her, on your knees for her, mm-hmm. then she's going to be impacted by that, and that's going to grow. And I I know stories of that where people have been married to their spouses for 20, 30 years, and no conversion. All of a sudden, I mean, I know this is a relative, actually, of my wife, where they were married, I think, for 40 years, and then the husband wasn't Catholic and didn't really practice anything. The wife was, and the husband just walked in one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to become Catholic. (laughs) Just out of the blue. And she's like, what on earth? I mean, for 40 years she'd been praying for this, and all of a sudden it just happened. And, you know, what was it? And the Holy Spirit, obviously. What was the direct reason? I don't know. It just all of a sudden one day it all clicked, and he said, I want to become Catholic. And all, and you know, for years she had prayed, she lived out her faith, and then that was the fruit, and it was a beautiful fruit at that. So we never have to, we also never give up hope. You might think your loved one, the person you're thinking of, is too far away. But the fact is, they can't get out of God's reach, and God is doing more than you're doing to bring them back already. So just have faith in that, and and trust, and be an instrument of Him. Eric, you've educated us, inspired us, encouraged us. We're so blessed to have you with us tonight. EricSammons.com, folks, for the new book, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, give us your heart. Give us your heart for our spouses, our families in this world. Let it be broken by what breaks yours. Help us to say yes, Lord, and entrust all to you to the glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, Eric.